Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven people, companies, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. Tech for good is the use of technology to affect deliberate positive social benefit. Our guest today, co-founder and executive director of Fast Forward, Shannon Farley, believes the world's biggest social problems, from healthcare to education to human rights, deserve the best technology solutions. Fast Forward invests in entrepreneurs who are using technology to accelerate social impact. Fast Forward's investments span beyond philanthropic funding through products and programs that bridge the tech and nonprofit sectors to build capacity for tech nonprofits. Shannon, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Hi, Aaron. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor to be here with you today. It is an honor to have you here with me today, so I appreciate that. I've had a few foundations and nonprofits who also help provide seed funding for other companies that do well by doing good, especially technology at the center. Let's just go back to the very, very beginning when you founded Fast Forward, the idea, the vision, why you found it, and also how that's evolved to today. Sure. I really believe that origin stories matter. I feel people are moved by stories. And our story is no different. Kevin Berenblatt is a friend of mine. He's my co-founder. He's a tech guy. He'd been working in Silicon Valley for most of his career, and he kept seeing people solving tech problems, but not human problems, right? They were building these really cool products that were doing things and going to look for new markets. But the thing is, is we have a lot of problems from education to healthcare, human rights, climate, and they need better tech solutions. We don't need Tinder for dogs. We just don't as humanity. We do need to think about some of our biggest social, moral, and human crises. And tech can be a powerful lever for change. I had been running nonprofit startup, and it was an early stage tech nonprofit. It was a, essentially a crowdfunding platform where we took small donations, we redistributed them to global grassroots women's organizations who were working on human rights issues throughout the world. And I ran into all of the problems that our startups had. It was a real struggle to find seed capital. It was a real uphill battle to get visibility for our work because no one really understood if tech could be a force for good. And it was hard to be in community with other founders because there really weren't at the time that many people building technology that was focused on markets that had failed. And so when Kevin, we were at a party seated next to each other at the dinner table, and he kept asking me, like, why aren't there more Khan Academies? Why aren't there more Wikipedias? And my honest answer was, dude, don't get me started. There's a lot of reasons. We don't have the resources that we see in the for-profit tech world. And I was like, you know, you're a tech guy. You could build that. And I'm so grateful. He called the next day and he was like, I think we should do it together. So we started hanging out and we went to coffee shops and we drew on napkins and post-its and decided that you know, we would just try it. We would try to use this model that has existed in Silicon Valley for a while, the accelerator model. Y Combinator is sort of the most famous tech accelerator where you give a little bit of money in the beginning and then you connect founders to each other and give them context and a network that they wouldn't otherwise be able to access and you see what you can build. You know, the first year we're like, we're just going to try it and figure it out. And then it ended up going so great that we've been at it. We're starting our ninth accelerator this week. So is it 
fair to say it's like a Y combinator, but for technology that is a nonprofit that benefits the greater good or communities? Yeah, absolutely. We use the accelerator model because it really helps, right? You, in the beginning, you need cash and you need connections and you need context. And accelerators are like a great way to do that in a box. And we are looking at technologies that are solving problems that markets simply will not solve. So crises in education, uh, crises in human rights and climate, there could be for-profit approaches, but they're never going to serve the most vulnerable because there simply isn't a market model for it. Yeah. I just want to make sure there is no Tinder for dogs because that's actually really funny what you mentioned earlier. Thanks. You know what? There actually is a Tinder for dogs, so I'm going to need another example. (laughs) Are you kidding? No, there is a company that is Tinder for dogs. It's heartbreaking. And like, just think about all the people who go there to work and that incredible human capital, and that's what they're spending their times on. It's being wasted. I hate to be judgy about it, but it's 100% being wasted. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's really interesting. And I applaud you you for all of this. So Kevin's background is tech. So he brings a lot of that. And um, when did you guys start? Back in what, seven years ago, six years ago? Yeah, 2014. You said you have launched, did you say nine now? You've, You've put through the accelerator? We've had 70 teams go through our accelerator and we're launching our ninth accelerator as we speak. Does it work kind of in an old school way in that folks apply and they pitch you a business plan or an idea that obviously has some sort of great social impact with technology at the center? And then you have a process where you vet these things and then help them raise money. Am I oversimplifying? No, that's exactly what happens. And I will say over the years, we've thought a lot about how do you create an ecosystem so it's easier to start these things. So in the beginning days, I would basically like tweet out, hey, we're looking for these things. Does anybody know these folks? I would call universities and other accelerators and sort of my wider network to gather folks. Today, we run a number of products within the fast forward world that surfaces funding opportunities and visibility opportunities for all tech nonprofits. There's about 800 globally. And because of that, that's one of the ways that we attract people to our pipeline. But yes, they have to go through an application process. And we vet them based on a number of criteria. How hard was it to get the financing lined up, the other side of it? Are there regular PE or VC funds or family offices that are participating in this? Or does it change based on the venture that you're putting through the accelerator? So these are 100% nonprofits. Like We really believe the nonprofit model, the 501c3 model or whatever that is in your country headquarters, is a really undervalued resource. When you have a nonprofit model, you can make product decisions that are about serving people, serving your beneficiaries, your ultimate customers, rather than about how you keep money in the door. The kinds of organizations that go through don't get traditional VC money because there's no return on investment in that way. They really only get philanthropy. Right. Unless that VC is looking to buy some goodwill or really believes in goodwill, right? Or is philanthropic, right? Like where we see investments from the venture community or investments from the tech community, it are, they are people who are techno-humanists. They're tech optimists. They believe that tech could be a force for good if the intentions are aligned. And so they make big bets on a number of the teams that come through and it's made a huge difference. I feel like the other investment player in the space that might be a surprise to the listeners are tech companies. 
there are many tech companies out there that want to see their products being used for good because there are humans working in those tech companies who are building things. They're excited about what they're building, but they also want them to be used for justice and hope rather than the other side of the coin. And so we partner very closely with tech companies like Google.org and Twilio and Okta who want to see their products at play in the good sector. As we're recording this, obviously, the world is potentially on the brink of World War III. TikTok is being potentially investigated by a number of AGs for how it may or may not harm, especially children. We all saw Facebook get dragged in front of Congress, not just once, but multiple times, but more recently with their whistleblower around the report around harm, especially to teenage girls. That's the dark side, right? That's the, uh, the other side of tech. So there is a fine line, right? And how do you reconcile what you're doing with some of the resistance or some of the objections in the market with regards to the tech that's out there right now? And I'll just mean the apps for dogs, <laughs> but it's complicated, right? It's really, really complicated. It is. Uh, I would say platforms in particular are tools that could be used for good or evil, but intention really matters. And this is why fast forward is gonzo on nonprofit models. That we believe that if you are a for-profit and you're intending to have a positive impact, it's really hard because your responsibility is to your shareholders. Your responsibility is to your investors. You may have to sacrifice the level of impact that you wanna have if it doesn't meet a profit goal. With a nonprofit model, you can focus 100% on impact. And that's a powerful, powerful tool. It's also a lot cheaper and easier to start a nonprofit now. Even eight years ago when we were founding Fast Forward, it was pretty expensive to start a tech nonprofit because the technology itself was expensive. Increasingly, the costs of tech have gone down so much, suddenly you could have a model that could serve last mile health clinics or a model that uses open data, open source to survey air quality around the globe and identify where there's polluters. That wasn't possible when the tech was expensive. When I think about for-profit tech companies that have made their products are not being used always for the best intentions, we also have to think about how what they built has changed what the social good sector can build. I'm not giving them a moral pass, but there are tools that we can use now in our sector that is a powerful agent for change. I think it's a really good point about accessibility and the bar being lower in that there's so many off-the-shelf tools that almost anybody can access. I also think AWS made a huge impact in that as well, right? Absolutely. So that that is really, really interesting. And I also like at the start, you referenced, you know, Wikipedia, you know, as an example of a very a well-known non- profit tech enabled entity attempting to serve, you know, the greater good. What was your first investment and or what what is the first nonprofit that came through the accelerator and what were they focused on and how are they doing today? Sure. Uh, well we had five groups come through the first accelerator and I'm really pleased to say that all of them are still in operation. Nice. Yeah, it's which is a big deal for startups, right? It, all startups are hard. That is also true for nonprofit startups. But one of our illustrious alumni is called Serum. A Serum is a prescription drug donation platform. In the United States, we waste a lot of prescription drugs. We waste it because of how our pharmaceutical industry works. We waste it because of how our hospital systems work. And 
basically we're throwing away and in worst cases, like putting it in biomedical waste and burning trash that have unexpired, unused drugs. So what Serum did was basically in the beginning, they became like a match.com for medicine. They would identify community clinics that struggled to pay for drugs for their patients and hospitals and other nursing home systems that had lots of drugs that people could use. And they basically were a logistics company that would recycle the drugs to the community clinics. It's a very elegant tech model because they can get resources from both the hospitals who will pay them for taking the drugs away because it's cheaper than putting it in biomedical waste. And the clinics would pay them a small fee because it's much cheaper than buying the drugs on market. Now, Serum had to be a nonprofit because as you can imagine, the recycling of drugs is a little politically complicated and they needed good Samaritan coverage, which is a benefit of being a nonprofit, which is that your intentions are good and so we're going to give you liability coverage. So Serum has now transitioned models slightly, and they're running their own mail order pharmacy, essentially, in the state of Georgia. But as a result, they've been able to scale to a profound level. In fact, just in this year, they have redistributed $120 million worth of prescription drugs and they're serving about 150,000 patients across the country. That's incredible. And how do they come to you, though? How do they know to come to you? And how do any would-be nonprofit tech entrepreneur know to come to you guys? Well, yeah, the first year, there was a lot of hustle, Aaron. I would like drive up and down the freeway going to various engineering schools and trying to find people who were building cool things. And so that's how I found Serum initially. It was started by students at Stanford. And they had started it as a class project and they were trying to get it on its feet. And so we were one of the first donors in the door and we've been working with them ever since. Today, it's a little bit easier since Fast Forward is the most famous accelerator of tech nonprofits. So more teams come to us now. That's also because we've built out products that serve the greater market. So we have a weekly email that has all the funding opportunities. We run pitch camps to teach any tech nonprofit founder how to talk to audiences that may not understand the social issue you're working on or may not understand the technology. We have conferences and we have media channels. All of these things, our hope is that it encourages people who have a great idea to think about applying it and building it as a nonprofit. I love that. It's just so interesting. And the timing is also unique in that I look at this new generation coming up whatever letter you want to call them, Z, whatever after Z is, but they are far more kind of community and high-minded than any other generation I've seen. I guess I'm technically an X to date myself. I'm an X too. We didn't do too bad, but uh, no, we are not as good as the millennials or Gen Z and Y. They are, they really want to work in places where their daily effort is going towards a social good. And I love that about them. For sure. And I was looking at your background. We both went to school in Washington, D.C. Yeah. I think I'm a little bit older than you. You went to the better school starting with the G, although I don't know. I love GW. I'll always be a GW's fan. (laughs) But, and you also, like me, it sounds like you volunteered in soup kitchens and in homeless shelters. I spent a night out on the street once my freshman year. The homeless problem in D.C., it's everywhere, unfortunately, is just awful. Yeah. It's quite significant for all sorts of reasons that we could have a whole different show on. Obviously, it deeply impacted you at a, at a very human level. 
And I respect the fact that, you know, you decided to take a different path and apply yourself in a way that wasn't just the kind of a moment in time, but it, it's, it's something that's enduring. Well, thank you. I want to give a lot of credit to Georgetown for this. I had a scholarship to college. So it was like work study scholarship. And they, you could like work in the library or you could go work for a local nonprofit and get the same work study coverage. And so that's what I did. I went and worked at a domestic violence shelter and I was the morning intake person. And it really did change how I thought about how the world worked and nonprofits were run and when policy butts heads with people's lived reality which is really true in a domestic violence shelter, like the kinds of things that the shelter is doing is ensuring that you're getting a driver's license or getting your kids in school. And like, maybe that's not what somebody needs after the worst night of their life. They do need a driver's license, but like that doesn't have to happen in the first hour that they're in the shelter. Anyway, so Georgetown gave me that opportunity, not just to go to school with support, but also to work on a social justice issue. And I feel like it changed how I thought the world could be. There are so many causes. There's so much need in so many different sectors. You gave me or gave our listeners one very interesting healthcare example around prescription drugs, which continue to still be problematic systemically in terms of access and whatnot and equitable access. Where also do you think there's a greater need for tech nonprofits to play a role having a greater impact in society? Where's the urgency right now? I mean, I will tell you it's everywhere. One of the things that was surprising and frightening and ultimately buoying about the pandemic is that many of our social safety net holes were became glaringly clear to the world. Brick and mortar nonprofits, traditional nonprofits have often sort of filled the gap in social safety net holes when those organizations were not able to be open, either physically or because of funding during the pandemic tech nonprofits came in. So tech nonprofits were working on food security, working on housing, working on economic justice issues, racial justice issues. They were working on the entire spectrum of the human experience. And we saw our tech nonprofits have profound growth. We think specifically about distance learning as an example, take Commonlit. Commonlit is a reading platform. It was developed by a reading teacher, Michelle Brown. She was working in rural Mississippi and she had a classroom that had a ton of kids and no books. So she built the thing that she wanted, which is a completely free literacy platform. Before the pandemic, they were serving a lot of kids. They were serving about 10 million kids, right? They were in many classrooms, particularly low-income classrooms throughout the country. Well, after the pandemic, now they're serving about 24 million kids. And for many of them, it's their first exposure to e-learning platforms. And now they have really great content on that platform because of Commonlit. So for people who are, I would say, flirting with social justice and thinking about good, every issue you imagine, there could be a tech nonprofit that's doing it. The tech is the tool to access the customers who aren't being served by the markets. If you rewound a couple of years before pandemic, and hopefully we're now nearing endemic, and hopefully when this airs, we're in endemic and non-pandemic. I feel like the tech community, not just our federal government, but the tech community wholly failed us in being able to accelerate testing, communication, even logistics, distribution of tests and vaccines and whatnot. If you had to re rewind, where do you think a tech nonprofit could have save lives and or ease some of the burden and hardship around vaccines, vaccine hesitancy? This is a big question, sorry. 
as well as testing. I mean, testing alone, right? It's like, as I sit here, I'm looking across the table and I see like test kits that I'm probably not, hopefully not going to need. They got them to me so late, like ridiculous. Don't you think that was a missed opportunity? Yes, I do think it was a missed opportunity. I feel like it was a missed policy opportunity more than a tech opportunity. There are certainly some tech companies that should have stepped up much earlier. I will tell you there are tech companies that did. And I'll just give you an example that uh, one of our teams is called IntelliHealth. IntelliHealth, when we met them five years ago, they were building for clinics in the last mile. They were basically providing telemedicine to places where there are no doctors. They were able to do that because they're using free and open source software that allows for video communication. You know, when we met them, it seemed like a crazy idea. Like who was actually going to meet with a doctor? That seemed a little wild. And, you know, this highly personal, highly private. It's, it's funny hearing you say that, actually. Yeah. And now they have had exponential growth over the COVID. And it wouldn't have been possible had tech companies not been working on better video conferencing systems earlier. So I feel like, yeah, they're definitely, particularly social media platforms, I feel like didn't serve us uh, as they could have during the pandemic, but there were other types of technology that meaningfully did. And it was really buoying to see tech nonprofits lean into the opportunity. And I think the positive ripples of that we'll see for years to come. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, you're right. Obviously, there were multiple failures at the policy level. I think part of policy, obviously, could be enabling technologies. Had we planned better, had we moved faster, had we actually adopted an agile mindset, which is a hallmark of a great high-performing tech company, right? I also think this is an opportunity for the world to rethink what corporate citizenship should be. We should take the lessons of the pandemic to heart and really think about the power of the private sector and what their responsibility should mean in these moments of crisis, whether it's the pandemic or a third world war. Would you ever... They have a responsibility. Would you ever entertain putting a public benefit corporation through your accelerator versus a nonprofit? Yeah, to me, the public benefit corporations are not interesting because the incentives aren't aligned. Right. Still, they're not aligned. And they're just not aligned. Like companies can be good citizens without paying the $45 licensing fee that you need to be a B Corp. And companies can be bad citizens even if they paid the $45 licensing fee. It just it, it is not a meaningful distinction at the moment. Do you think the B Corp movement is good or bad? And I hate to actually try to box you into that very binary question. I don't think it's a movement. So I would say that it's not actually a movement. It's a marketing technique. I think to your point about generations, like I think, God bless Gen Zers, they are not going to accept working for corporate citizens that are not taking justice issues to heart. And so my hope is that they accelerate a move towards a more equitable corporate citizenship model. You know, I've been on the comms marketing reputation side of this whole thing for 30 plus years now. And I've never been more excited to be able to see companies and leaders step up and stand up for issues that were once taboo, not even as, as few as 10 years ago, right? And I think about even things like voter rights. And of course, you know, as we're recording this, a tyrannical, despotic leader named Putin has invaded and attacked, unprovoked uh, Ukraine. And 
I actually wrote a column recently just saying how brands and agencies need to stand up and do something. And you have apples pulled out of Russia. I mean, you know, they're basically, I have, this is an example of tech for good. If you just take away disinformation campaigns, which will always, misinformation will always be around. This is the first wired world war. And you're, you're, you're seeing the benefits of technology to rally goodness against evil, right? Yeah. And to me, that's, that's great. That's, that's absolutely amazing. It's absolutely amazing. I, I agree. And I feel, I hope it is a trend that sticks. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, we just going back to B Corp, I'm not trying to make this provocative or controversial, but we've had companies that are B Corp certified. We've had B Corp on, and we've had companies that I think really do well by doing good. Deckers uh, is an example. And the CEO, uh, Dave Powers, he's like, why do I need to be a B Corp to prove what I'm doing? He's like, I'm very confident and I have a lot of accountability to my shareholders and others. And, you know, we do all of the reporting and all the KPI. Why do I have to bring a third party in for like a badge? And I, and I can see both sides of the argument. But what I will say is anytime any organization or any um, level of communication increases a consciousness or an awareness and pushes companies to do better, even if they're doing it for maybe not the right reason that we would deem, it's still good. It's still good. Yeah, I agree. I think corporations have always been political participants, and there's a real opportunity and hopefully social pressure to make that political participation about improving daily lives of not just their customers, but the communities in which they live. And so I don't think you need a B Corp symbol. If it's helpful to you have a B Corp symbol because it's fodder uh, for your board meetings, that's cool with me. But I'm also more interested in organizations that are leaning into things that markets won't solve. Because I feel that is the corpus of our biggest problems as a global community. Right, those unmet needs. Okay. It's, it's interesting the way you characterize, it's true, corporations have always been part of the kind of a political process. It's just that for the longest time, they were behind the curtain. And now we're asking them and forcing them, rightfully so, to step in front of the curtain. And that's, that's I think, the major difference in, in what we're seeing today. And I think as, as consumers and citizens, we just have to be prepared for the fact that sometimes the way they step in front and step out, it might not be in line with our values. And, and then, but then I get to choose. It's a free market to who I want to buy my goods and services from. Because it's going to be increasingly important that I do that from companies that align with my value system. I mean, hopefully you get to choose, but not if there's only five of them. Well, that is true. And, and the other assumption is that we, benefit, that we have a benevolent government. Up until, say, I don't know, 2016, I was very safe in that assumption. And <laughs> the world changed so <laughs> and continues to swirl. So I don't take that for granted anymore either. And I don't think anybody does. Well, and it also speaks to the importance of maintaining and growing nonprofit models because it can be a viable competitor. In your world, in media, we certainly see that with public news, right? It's important to have at least one or two news sources that are designed to benefit the public exclusively. In our world, we call that beyond influence, right? So it's the reason why I love National Public Radio and the BBC and, you know, The Guardian. But it's, it's, not, a, it's, it's not quite that linear, right? Because even those organizations, they have sponsors, they don't have advertisers. They have advertisers that are called sponsors, but I do think that they take more painstaking measures to ensure that there is no conflict and conflict of interest with regards to influence around their reporting, regardless of who's giving them money to sponsor their operation. I hope so, right? 
I hope that's what they're striving for. I think they are. I think they work hard at it. I'm a big NPR nerd, so I just have to believe that. And I do believe in you know public radio, public television. So yeah, that is the idea. In the time we have remaining, one more example, non-healthcare example, uh, a nonprofit that came through your program. One of our favorite examples is Talking Points, because I feel like their origin story is so inspirational. Talking Points was started by a woman named Hee Jae Lim. She's a Korean immigrant. And she noticed how her mom, who spoke English, was able to really communicate with her teachers, whereas many of her peers' parents were not English speakers. And so they didn't get the same access to the teachers. She's thinking about this. She goes on with her life. She goes, she becomes a McKinsey consultant. She's working in the world. And this like thing is noodling in her head. She can't let it go. She comes across in grad school an article that states that it turns out that parental involvement in a child's education is one of the best indicators of graduation. It's not zip code. It's not number of kids in a classroom. It is parental involvement. And most parents want to be involved in their kids' lives. So she was thinking about what you would do to unlock that engagement. And she realized, she had a phone in her pocket, she could pair a very simple technology, Twilio, which like allows, is the platform that would allow SMS, text-based communication, and another simple technology, Google Translate, to empower teachers to be able to talk with families who speak any language. You know, when we met her, she'd taken like 5,000 bucks out of her student loan to build the beta app. And she was working in a couple of classrooms in Oakland, which if you don't know Oakland, California, Oakland, California has a lot of different communities living within the county. And so it's not just Spanish and Mandarin that's spoken. There are thousands of long tail languages spoken in Oakland. So this has been like a meaningful problem in their classrooms. And they found after a year or so of working that parents were very engaged and it fundamentally changed the dynamics of classrooms and ultimately the school district. Today, Talking Points is working all over the country. They're serving over 5 million families. And honestly, the addressable market is limitless, right? There's more kids coming in every day speaking all kinds of language. As we think about the current refugee crises globally, there's going to be more and more diversity, linguistic diversity within our classrooms. It's been really amazing to see what Common Lit has built. They're serving 5 million families and they have about 17 people working for them at the moment. That's incredible. That's the power of technology, right? You can do that. It is. And it goes to the point you made earlier, which is they didn't have to create something new. They just had to stitch together two things that were proven in the market to work, but you're making them work for something that is an unmet, but very huge need. That's incredible. And to credit Talking Points, now they have a whole tech team. They've built out a suite of tools. Like As they got on their feet, they are building original products. For any budding entrepreneur listening today, you know, you have a powerful agent for change in your pocket, your phone. If you can think about how you would reach the hardest to reach users using a phone, which almost everyone in the world has at this point, or soon will, particularly post-pandemic, there is a real opportunity there. Yeah, for sure. And last related and unrelated question to that is, how do you guard against a for-profit stealing a nonprofit's idea and capitalizing on it for profit. Yeah, I think that's an interesting thing about this field is that many of our nonprofits, particularly the successful ones, actually have for-profit competitors. But because they've selected a nonprofit model, they're able to serve 
students or communities or end users that for-profits simply cannot afford to use. Take, for example, Talking Points. Talking Points is exclusively looking at low-income school districts who can't afford a service like Remind, which is the same thing. It's translation apps for teachers for parental engagement. So Talking Points is free. You can pay to get some analytics, but it's very accessible as a price point that makes sense, particularly for low-income school districts. Commonlit, which we also talked about, you know, there's lots of for-profit digital literacy tools these days, but because of how much they have to charge schools, low-income schools simply can't afford to use them. Great example. I love it. Also, like if you're talking about literacy and access to cheaper prescription drugs, come on, for-profits, go for it. I would like to see more access to reading and drugs. The benefit of being a nonprofit is we want these problems solved. We don't necessarily care who solves them. In fact, if it encourages others to be able to eliminate some of these problems or these needs, then it's all the better, right? Absolutely. Listen, Shannon, this has been so interesting, and I'm sorry we didn't get even more examples, but I just have so much respect for what you're doing and what you will continue to do. I can't wait to have you on. I'd love to have some of your nonprofits on, actually. Sure. Um, because I think they all have... We'll get them on there. They have so many interesting stories to tell. Maybe we'll devote a whole month to fast forward. That would be amazing. And nonprofits. I think you've heard it here first. <laughs> so good luck with everything. Thank you so much. You're so generous with your time. And I look forward to seeing you continue to succeed and launch more and more tech-enabled nonprofits that make the world a better place and to help those in need and those communities and, and individuals who are living in the margins. So thank you. Thank you, Aaron. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brand on Purpose, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful, purpose-driven companies, organizations, and people. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our production team, including Maria Bias, Michael Grubbs, Anna Lamb, Haley Sackett, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show, sponsorship opportunities, and hosts by emailing BOP at kwtglobal.com or visiting aaronquitkin.com. Find us on LinkedIn and Instagram under Brand on Purpose Podcast.